Welcome to First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast. I'm your host, James Gardner, certified athletic therapist, certified strength and conditioning specialist, yoga instructor, human being. This platform, for the pros, by the pros, anybody in the performance space, and beyond. Welcome here to share in the stories of professionals, experiences, journeys, learning along the way. It's a platform to connect, to network, and to be a part of a community that cares with conversations that matter, experiences that resonate, and generate ideas, thought-provoking, organic dialogue, passionate probes. Brought to you as always by First Star Therapy, Mobility Tape, Epic, and Benchmark Athletics. In association with the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association, it's First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being a part of it. Table brought to you by First Star Therapy. I'm your host, James Gardner, and this is a platform for the pros by the pros. Passionate pros, organic dialogue. Let's chat. Thanks for listening. Let's roll. And we are off to the races. Session 62, First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy round table brought to you by First Star Therapy, our primary sponsor, Mobility Tape, the only heat-activated kinesiology tape on the market. Also brought to you by our newest sponsors, Epic. Live your Epic, that's E-P-O-C-H, and Benchmark Athletics. Make it a benchmark in silk screening and printing for your athletic needs. This broadcast is brought to you in association with the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association, and we are ready to roll. I'll ask everybody who's here live just to save your questions till the end. You can filter those over to me through the chat, and I'll get those over to Greg if we have enough time at the end here. appreciate everybody being here. appreciate everybody picking up the podcast, the YouTube channel, and all of the things in between. Things are moving along, and here we go. Last day of February, certainly not the least. Uh, Greg Zahn is a retired professional baseball catcher. He played for nine teams over 16 seasons in Major League Baseball from 1995 until 2010, winning a World Series championship in 1997 in those beautiful teal unis with the Marlins. From 2006 to 2017, he served as an on-air personality with Sportsnet right here in Canada. In 16 seasons in the big leagues, he had stops in Baltimore, Florida, Texas, Kansas City, Houston, Colorado, Toronto, Baltimore again, Tampa Bay, and Milwaukee. Greg amassed over 1,200 games played at the major league level, nearly 3,500 at-bats, 878 hits, and 446 RBI as a big leaguer. During that time, he endured numerous bumps, bruises, and significant injuries, which we will follow here tonight, not only from a recovery standpoint, but also in terms of things that worked and didn't work when it comes to performance personnel in the big leagues and working with somebody who knows his body and understands himself as well as Greg does. A leader on the field and in the clubhouse, Greg Zahn. Zani, appreciate your time, man. Appreciate you being here. Uh, awesome to see you. Two dimensions, but uh, awesome to see you either way. Yeah, great to see you again. Uh, you know, for those of the listeners that don't know, you and I had a chance to work together in the Toronto clubhouse uh, when you were interning. Uh, and you were a pup, so it's, it's nice to see you. It's nice to see you coming up and, uh, and making your way in the, in, the, in the business now. Good, good to be here. Yeah, man. Thank you. And and I can almost grow a beard now, which is great, too. So uh, a, a few different things. I'll, we'll start with that clubhouse. Um, I don't think you even know this. I think I'm, I probably was in shock at the time. But when I was interning, uh, Greg, you were in uh, you had some suits, some custom suits, and you ended up uh, at one of them. Two of them didn't fit you. And you said, hey, you, you come over here. Why don't you try these on? And, and you gave me two suits, which I still have. And I'm still floored um, yeah. by, by that gift at the time as an intern working under 
underneath George and Dave and all the good people in the Blue Jays organization. But uh, I took away a lot of memories beyond the suits of you and your time spent in the training room uh, on the field as as somebody that I look up to as, as somebody who takes care of themselves, knows their body, wants to challenge on a, on an educated level in terms of what's required to be a big league catcher. And uh, I'm humbled that you take the time to be here, man. Truly grateful for you uh, sitting in here and, and sharing your story with with our listeners, both live and the ones that are going to pick this up um, from all walks of, of the performance space. Well, we had enough time to together. By the time I worked with you in Toronto, my body was uh, pretty battered, um, pretty pretty beat up by the time I got to Toronto. Um, and if, if, if not for that great training staff, you included, um, I don't know if I get through those five years in Toronto. Uh, I don't know if I play any, any further after that. Um, it was... Uh, a great experience for me and an educational one. It was uh, nice, uh, nice for me to, to work with professionals whose whose main objective was to keep me feeling good and keep me on the field, which was uh, uh, something new, breath of fresh air. Yeah, beautiful man, and a great share. And 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 you learn a lot as an intern. You learn a lot as a therapist. You learn a lot as a player when you have that dialogue. And I think um, I just recall, you know, you'd hunker down in the in the training room and. Um, and, and just sort of make a, I don't want to say make a home there in a bad way, but make a home there. And you really got a pulse of what was going on. I think you gathered a lot of information from your pitchers and, and the staff that was there as well from being in the training room. Cause you, you dictated a lot of things from behind the plate too. So before we get into like any of the injuries and things like that, um, what, what were some of the big things along, uh, along the way that you may have picked up on in the training room that weren't related to sort of like how you're going to recover? Well, you know, one of the things for me was just kind of the way things went. I mean, obviously, when I was a young player, I was told right away, you know, if you got nicks, you got bumps, bruises, you need treatment, get in there and get it done before the veteran players get there. That was huge. It was a pecking order. Um, even if you were a young, everyday player, you still had to get in there and get out of there before the, the regulars and the, and the vets got in there. That was their privilege for having been in the big leagues for so long giving them the ability to stay, uh, you know, out of there and go in at their leisure when they felt like doing it. Um, that was one of the first things um, that I that I learned. And then, you know, the other thing that I learned along the way was kind of, kind of feeling out, you know, the trainers and the, the staff, understanding, you know, where their loyalties lie, you know, where, where, do, they, where, do, they, where do they measure up when it comes to, are they really here to help me be my best or are they are they here to keep keep tabs on me and report back to the to the front office as to you know my needs and you know my 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 bumps my bruises like I get it you want to put the best product on the field that you possibly can but you know my old school way of thinking you know putting your best nine players on the field as much as you possibly can um, is a little different than, than what some of the training staffs that I had a chance to work with in nine clubs you know, a lot of them felt like they were doing what they could to keep me off the field. And so that led me to seek out knowledge. And it, it led me to always have my ear open when, when you or any of the other trainers were working with players or doctors were in there talking to other teammates. I was, I was soaking it all up because, you know, as I said, by the time, you know, I probably about halfway through my career, I had my first surgery and, and, and I just, I needed to know, I needed to know everything that I possibly could. That was huge for me because being able to connect my brain and my knowledge of what was happening to me, what was being done to me treatment wise, um, that was huge for me to connect the body and the mind. It was a full buy-in. You know, if I, if I believed what you guys were telling me, if I believed the science behind it. And then I actually felt differences, the positive change in my body and my recovery. That just made it happen so much faster. It made it easier for me to get excited about getting in there, getting the work done, and getting over it. Because by the time I, you know, the last five years of my career, I felt like I spent more time in the training room than I did on the field. Yeah, no, great, great takeaways, um, even in the first couple of minutes. I mean, one thing that, that we talk about on a regular basis, whether we're educating practitioners or working as practitioners, working with athletes, it's, it's how to, um, you know, and, and a big 
line for me now is how to give the power to the player, right? Give them the understanding so that they can walk out of the room feeling like they're in control of what's going on and they're not necessarily dependent on what's happening in there. Um, you know, you and I have, have had some overlap in the past and we had a brief chat the other day and, and just going back through your career on, on what was, you know, where, where you went with injury and those kind of things. Like we'll, we'll go down some of those rabbit holes for sure. Um, but you bring up some great points, you know, uh, understanding that fine line you as a major league baseball player you understand what your job and your role is um trainers and and strength personnel and these other people like some of the people behind the scenes they i mean that aren't behind the scenes you don't necessarily understand that there's a navigation that goes on there too right in terms of keeping the players on the field but also you are uh, employed by the organization and so uh, there's some there's a lot of things that have to go on in terms of the dynamic to keep things fluid with players so that you don't feel like you're being held back and you don't feel like, you know, there's these other things going on. So those, those are some great insights that not a lot of people get um, exposure to unless you're, you're actually there. So um, some really great stuff. Notice you, had a, you had an amazing career, like 1,200 games played at the toughest position possible in baseball. Um, you're throwing the ball as much as as well, more than anybody else, because the pitchers, they just five innings are out of there seven innings they're out of there um you're throwing the ball back uh throwing it down a second base third base wherever it needs to go uh any number of times through your career do you feel like um uh, catchers kind of took a, a backseat to pitchers in terms of the maintenance and, and those kind of things i've always kind of explored that a little bit with catchers and um you know pitchers always have their programming and, and they have their their workups and their day-to-days but as a catcher do you feel like uh you know you guys are throwing obviously not as high velocity all the time as pitchers but was there was there ever sort of like a catcher's program uh, as opposed to the, the pitchers programs that are always in place no in fact i would say that most catchers thought of getting treatment getting attention um as you know a sign of weakness you know, I had a conversation earlier today about how much water my players go through. It's like they take five swings and then they got to go to the water jug. I didn't even own a water jug when I was a kid. Like, <laughs> I'd play three games, bicycle my way to and from practice. I was a camel. I didn't drink water. We didn't. Water was a sign of weakness. Um, treatment is a sign of weakness, but it's a reality for our position because we just get banged up so much. But at, at the end of the day, I tried to eliminate as much of it as I possibly could because, you know, it just – you weren't a tough guy. I remember my first year in the big leagues, I'm playing for the Orioles, and I take a line drive off of my groin, and and, and B.J. Serhoff is screaming at me from the dugout using profanity, and he's like, it's not going to effing stop hurting until it effing does. You're effing up the flow of the game. And I'm like, he's like, get back there and let's go. And I was like, wow, like here, this is from a guy who used to catch. You're not even catching anymore and you're, you're screaming at me. But I always remembered that. And I started doing it to the young catchers when I was an older guy. I was like, look, it ain't going to stop hurting until it does, so let's go. You know, I mean, if, you're, if your finger's broken, if something's broken, or there's blood in your eyes and you can't play, then we'll stop the game. But other than that, all you're going to do is draw attention to yourself. And so, yeah, I felt like catchers were ignored because they just assumed that we were like these tough guys that were built out of scrap iron. And, and honestly, you know, there's a lot of catchers out there who aren't that tough, who need a lot of attention. I mean, I always looked at my body like tenderized meat. You know, you go to spring training, you haven't been hit with a baseball for, you know, three, four, five months, whatever it was. And then all of a sudden, that first ball that you block mm. hits you in your, your stomach or your rib cage or your forearm if you're not good at it. And you feel every bit of that. That first foul ball off of your groin uh, in the spring training game, you want to cry. You feel every bit of it. And I mean, it rocks you to your soul. And then fast forward to like mid May. You wake up with giant welts on your body and you don't even remember getting hit. Mm -hmm. That's how much tenderized meat you become. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I just don't remember even, there was never a program. Not one team I played on in, in 16 years ever developed a program to keep catchers healthy. They, and that was the weirdest thing about it. You know, I missed one day in 22 years of playing professionally, I missed one day due to illness. 
first day of spring training when I went to camp with the Milwaukee Brewers, I got food poisoning at a cheesecake factory. It's the only time I ever missed due to food poisoning, cold, or flu. Never, ever any other time in 22 years. Why? Because I'm only one of two guys. I was literally on the training table on multiple occasions with IV bags hooked up to my arm with the, the most awful flu or whatever because I had to be. Like they were literally ready to, to pump adrenaline into my heart if something happened to the other catcher because there's only two of us. And you think if there's only two of us and there's 12 or 13 pitchers, why wouldn't there be a program to take care of the two most important guys on the team just based on the lack of bodies that can actually do what we do? So, yeah, there were no programs for us. It was just, hey, dude, rub some dirt on it and go get them. Yeah, yeah, and sort of that rite of passage, right? Like uh, you're back there, you're back there for a reason, but you're only back there until until you're not, right? Like it's only going to hurt until it stops hurting. Yeah, yeah. man, in a tough position, like in a, in a in a quote unquote slow sport. Uh, to to those that don't know it, you're also thinking all the time, you know, and you're taking foul foul tips off your jaw, foul tips off your shoulder, and you have to navigate a game, coach a pitcher through whether you're taking signs from the dugout or not. I'm, I'm always amazed at the at the uh, the, the, the longevity of your career and, and the ability to sort of navigate all those things, because just because you go on the IR with a surgery, like all those other sort of, um, you know, sub concussive blows or concussive blows with foul tips and the jaw and the, and the chest and shoulder, and you got to keep moving, man. It's, it's a, it's a position that needs uh, all the TLC. It's sort of, I feel like kind of synonymous with like off offensive linemen in football, you know, they're not supposed to go to the training room, but you'll see the quarterback in there on a, on a fairly regular regular basis oh yeah they have regular spa day that's what i used to call them spa day <laughs> yeah, that's go right in there, go in there and get rubbed and pampered i'm like when are you getting your nails painted buddy you know like come on you go in there for for like they had regular spa days all the time we did i just didn't do it i mean the extent of unless i was really nursing something bad the extent of my 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 pregame prep was a dunk in the hottest water i could get into you know, 105 to 108 degree water. Sometimes it's 110 if I was really hurting. Um, you know, some some Tylenol, uh, some anti-inflammatories, which became like a dietary supplement to me. And you know, go get them. You know, every once you know, you know, you worked on me. I, you know, there were some times like when I broke my neck and had the the, the big concussion. You know, that there were some necessary things that needed to be done. The, the, the arm was you know here and there. Um, every once in a while, but you know, that, that was the extent of my spa day was that hot tub. That was my life's life savior. Um, you know, and then, and, you know, when you were there, we got the, the in-ground hot and cold tanks. That was, that was pretty cool to be able to ice my entire body and not look like a big sissy doing it. Cause there was 14 other guys waiting to use the same, same in-ground cold tub. So that, that was, that was the big thing was, you know, for me, heat, ice, um, you know, anti-inflammatory medication, and then just, just a, a raw need to be on the field. You know, I, I first half of my career I sat on the bench. By the time I got to Toronto, I got a chance to play all the time. And, you know, I, I didn't want to give that up because somebody was always waiting to take my job. They brought other guys in to take my job. Um, I wasn't going to let the injury be the reason why I couldn't get out there and perform. Yeah, no, uh, uh, amazing. If we go back through and 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 you and I sort of you walked me through sort of a brief summation uh, of of the injuries and those, those kind of things as we go, and and I was fairly fairly familiar with it. But you, you sort of had a clean slate up until one injury that stands out to you, and then and then there was sort of a cascade from that point forward of of other things that that happened from that point. Um, maybe before we go there, let's go to. Um, if you're okay doing so like that fractured neck and, and, yeah. and what you recall from that, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a quote, it's a, the sport itself is non-collision in nature in comparison to football and hockey, but as a catcher, it's, it's fairly collision based. I mean, you're sandwiched between a hitter, uh, 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 an umpire, you have a pitcher throwing a baseball that's moving at however, you know, many miles per hour, hitting the dirt, hitting you in the chin. Um, but, but you experience a collision uh, breaking up a double play, right? Is yeah. That, yeah. 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 So for those that aren't familiar, I think if, if you want to walk us through that and then how that sort of situated itself in your career, um, 
and what that dialogue was like. Cause that's, that's not an easy one. That's probably not an easy one to even watch and, and sort of go back and replay. Oh God, I only watched it once. I, I can't watch it. Um, so um, it's a ninth inning of a ball game. I walked to lead, uh, get on base. I don't remember if it was, it was one out and ground ball to third base. I'm running to second and I was hitting right-handed. So I had the, the, the ear flap on this side. So my entire right side of my face is exposed with, you know, the helmet because I'm, you know, facing the pitcher this way. And I, I was a pretty tough guy. I like I liked to what I'd call punt middle infielders into left field on double plays. I like to go in hard and break it up because I want to make sure the guy behind me didn't get thrown out. Maybe an RBI was on the line, whatever. But at this point, if they turn the double play, the game's over. So I go in hard. Second baseman got there late. He hit me right here in the triangle, uh, my jaw, my neck, my ear. Right there, like where a bo- the the ideal spot where a boxer would be aiming for with a hook, and he hit me with his knee, and I got knocked out unconscious immediately. I was unconscious with my eyes open. That's how bad I got knocked out. It was a level four concussion, and I fractured C one. Mm-hmm. We're talking millimeters away from dying there on the field. Um, that's that's it. for those of you that don't know. If you fracture C one, your chances of survival are pretty pretty slim i i was lucky that it was the transverse process that got fractured it was stable it didn't splinter off or do anything to my nerves um i'm laying there on the field face down uh tobacco in my mouth I was you know a bit heavy tobacco user at the time and i remember about three or four minutes after i was knocked out i remember i think it was dave abraham was laying on top of me he was laying on top of me and i couldn't see him my eyes are wide open. You can see it all in the video, uh, but I can't see. And I remember him being on top of me, and he, exactly why he was on top of me is what happened. I got violent, and I started panicking because I couldn't get up. And mm-hmm. I started flailing my arms and swinging. I tried to kill him. You know, I was like, get off me, dude. I was scared, and I didn't know where I was, and I couldn't see. Um, and then they walked me through what had happened, and they said, you, you've had a head injury. You're on the field. We're right here with you. And we're going to have to take you to the hospital. And it was Mother's Day. I remember it was Mother's Day. Now, imagine being my mother at the sports book in Las Vegas on their annual Mother's Day trip, watching this happen to her son. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Crazy. I didn't know about this until a couple of years later. She wouldn't tell me. Um, So they they strapped me to a cart um, and they didn't take the tobacco out of my mouth. So now I'm laying there with my head taped to a a hard board. and they put me in, the, in the, the ambulance, and now I'm getting sick to my stomach, So, and I'm going to throw up, and I don't know what's going to happen. I'm going to choke on my on my vomit and maybe maybe you know die right there or asphyxiate. Probably wouldn't happen with all the medical personnel. But I remember Doc Boyne being in the ambulance with me, and you know, thank God it was her that day on call because you know her – we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, so then they have to flip me on my side, let me vomit in the ambulance. Then they take me to – the hospital. Um, so, you know, they do the x-rays. They come in, they tell me, they say, you broke your neck. And I'm like, well, what's the deal? And Doc's like, don't worry about it. It's nothing. It's a stable fracture. It's not displaced. You're good. And I'm like, all right, when can I play again? And she's like, all right, well, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's hold for a second. <laughs> um, so long story short, I, I don't know what she put in my body, but I know the next day I woke up, she was there, um, face down, um, immobilized, and she proceeded to inject my spine with a cocktail of something that she had brought back from Eastern Europe. It was a, a homeopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. And she combined it with trauma injection, and she put it, I think there were 28 shots in my spine and my neck, wow. which sucked. That, that, that hurt worse than the actual accident. And... After that, and then she gave me an intravenous uh, dose of that pink lemonade, we called it. And the next day, the only thing I felt like was I had a little bit, like I had a sore neck from sleeping on it wrong. I had zero post-concussion syndrome and never did a day after that. Never did. I literally would resume baseball activity eight days later after breaking my neck. If they had had a, a concussion DL, like they do now, I would have been back on the field in say you know ten days. Right. So she saved my career. I mean, I look at teammates like Aaron Hill who got a little bump on the head from David Eckstein of all people, um, and he missed two thirds of a season with post 
post-concussion uh, syndrome. Yeah. And he really was never right again. Right. Mike Matheny, the, 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 like you said earlier, the, the repetitive smashing of balls against your mask in your head. Um, you know, and, and I don't think for me, you know, I already had multiple head traumas in my life. As a 10-year-old, I fell out of a moving vehicle going 40 miles an hour, had a big, huge fractured skull, um, you know, almost died there on the streets. Uh, you know, the brain started to swell and expand. And, you know, a lot of people think that my ADD and my sleep apnea are a result of that accident, that head trauma. Um, but I never had the, 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 the concussion syndrome. I, I, I high jumped and, and, and hit my head, knocked myself out again. Um, you know, but I don't, I don't really have all those lingering effects. So the, 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 head, the head injuries are so uh, different for each person. Yeah, uh, and that's that's you know you, you hit you hit the nail on the head like being able to have that conversation with an athlete with a trainer with a doctor where you can express yourself and tell them this is what I'm feeling understanding what you're trying to tell them what they're trying to tell you and then and then of course that level of trust is developed I had, I was lucky to have Dr. Boynton there with me because of all the the the, the orthopods that we had on staff for the for the Jays. Her and I gelled. We were really, really close to one another. And so when she told me something, I believed it as if it was gospel. Yeah. She's like, yeah, I want to shoot you up with this stuff. I'm like, let's go. Let's get it done. All right? I, you know, whatever. I had like 20-plus injections in my neck, in my spine. Yeah. And you know what? It worked. Yeah. And and an amazing, um, you know, an amazing scenario, an amazing set of circumstances. And, and you know, I was interning back then with George. And, and, and the one thing that George would would you know, bear down on every day as an intern is like, all right, enjoy that you're here, but also understand, like, let's plan for the worst. So when you look at this field, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, line drive back at the pitcher, hits him in the head, the bat breaks, he goes into the umpire's chest, you know, all kinds of things, like playing it out as, as badly as it could go. And that's a worst case scenario. You know, that's a trainer's nightmare, but if you're not prepared. And so, again, like bringing this back around to our profession and our space in terms of uh, athletic therapists and sports chiros and physiotherapists, strength and conditioning personnel that are, that are on the field and in the dugout, having these EAPs in place is, is critical. You know, you don't expect to have a, a fractured neck. You don't expect to have probably the, the, the to a pound to a person strongest guy on the field break his neck and then try to throw you off of him. You know, and, and, and Dave wasn't a big guy, but you're certainly a, a pretty strong dude. And uh, and uh, I don't know if Dave stayed on or not, but either way, uh, Dave was the assistant trainer at the time with George and um, a great staff there and, and Dr. Boynton as well. And, and all those people that you mentioned um, clearly, you know, had a plan, had your best interest at heart and got you what you needed to, to get you back. Um, see one fracture right that's right at the base of the skull that's that's the supportive that's where the majority of the rotation happens between c1 c2 uh in the spine and, and those are areas that that don't typically you're right get fractured and if they do there's usually a lot of um you know a lot of uh, additional trauma if somebody is to survive that so um uh transverse like that transverse process is over to the side that's kind of like you jab your finger in there for those that aren't familiar like you jab your finger in there you can feel sort of the bony prominence going either way from the spine um um, that's the area that we're talking about. And, and um, you know, if you're not, uh, if you have a strong stomach, you, you can probably find that video um, and, and watch just how quickly the game of baseball can go from non-collision snap of the finger to collision and something bad can happen, you know, and, and, and that happens with high level sport. It happens to, to, to somebody like you, it's going to play hard, you know, you're going to play the game hard and, and there's lots of those things. And, um, you know, you, you bring up such a great point and I don't think enough people study this, um, at length or, or understand it at length, you know, the concussive piece. And, and we don't have to go down this road too far, but yours where you fracture a vertebrae, it's right there on the screen. It's on an X-ray. We can see it. Uh, and then Hilly's with one of the smallest guys in baseball and, and uh, running, not him, but well, he might've been too, but uh, at David Eckstein and, and then a, a prolonged recovery uh, if, if there ever even was a recovery from, from post-concussive stuff. And so not the same injury, but the same injury is in terms of a diagnosis, right? Like that concussive side of things. And, right. and uh, I think that's, that's also 
um, a huge takeaway. Like no two humans are the same, no two injuries are the same. And, uh, and, and that was a big one. So um, I appreciate you sharing that and sharing that with, with the audience, because I think, again, like no matter how safe you think the sport is that you're covering, um, high speed collisions can happen and freak accidents can happen. And, and it just so happened you were hitting, you know, right-handed that day. And if you had been hitting left-handed that day, maybe that face shield, uh, the glancing blow happens instead of a direct blow, like who knows. And, and so, you know, understanding all of that stuff and, um, goes a long, long way for us in terms of setting things up. So appreciate that share. Um, we'll jump ship from, from that one and, and move on to your other collision, right? Throwing Derek Jeter out at second base. Um, go take us through that one. That was your, it resulted in your first surgery, which I think, um, to your recollection and, and, um, to your career sort of was the cascade, right? Like that cascading event of this was the first injury. And then all of a sudden my hand, my shoulder, my elbow, um, you, you, you want to walk us through that? I, I love story time yeah. with Zani. So I'll sit, I'll sit through any story you got. Yeah, it's, it was crazy. You know, it was my birthday. We're playing, I'm playing for the Royals. We're in New York. They facing Roger Clemens. I just hit a home run. I'm on cloud nine. Hit a home run off Roger Clemens. Get us back in the ball game. I think it was like the top of the seventh inning or so. Go out. Derek Jeter gets on base, takes off running. I come out throwing, and I here I am in mid throw, and I'm on my way down, letting it go. And Clay Bellinger, the dad of Cody, the big superstar in the Dodgers right now, mm-hmm. he comes falling across home plate. And my arm comes to an abrupt halt moments after I release the baseball on his back. And my flexor mass blows up. And so now I'm on the shelf for six weeks. Um, We didn't know that, or at least they didn't tell me that there was a partial tear of the ulnar collateral ligament um, involved in that, in that uh, uh, collision. Um, And so they decide not to do surgery. And the doctors, they said, oh, you, you don't need surgery to repair this. Um, we'll just rehab it for six weeks. And here is my first instance where I felt like the trainers were doing what they could do to keep me off the field and didn't have my best interest in heart. Okay, so in 2000, I would have been 29 years old. Um I could have I could have sat out a year with Tommy John surgery and still had a pretty good career afterwards. I mean, my arm was never the same. And as we walk down this this path and we dive into this rabbit hole, I'm gonna tell you right now. I don't care what a doctor says. I don't care what a therapist says. If you get cut on, if they invade your body to do surgical repair, you will not be the same ever, in my opinion. You might be able to go back to participating in, the, in that particular activity. Mm-hmm. Won't be as good as you were at it for at least a year. I don't care what they say. Um, and if you are as good at it, it's never going to be the same. So I get the flexor mass injury and the molar collateral ligament that they I didn't know about until years later. Um and they rehab it. While I'm rehabbing it, guarding against the elbow pain, I tear my labrum. I had never had a sore arm a day in my life mm-hmm. until that instance where I get hit. Now I've got a bad elbow and a bad shoulder, and I'm in a I'm I'm going to be arbitration eligible for the first time ever. So now. I've got really, really strong decisions to make. So I finished the rest of that season um, basically living on Vicodin because I had no choice. I had to get through the year uh, in order to get to that arbitration year with a full, with a finished season. So I did, I came back strong and I did what I had to do and I had off season shoulder surgery. Now it was just a, a, a posterior labrum debridement, but Nevertheless, they went in and they cut on things. They removed things that were in my body. And all of a sudden, things had to repair themselves. So 29 years of muscle memory and knowing what to do and how to react and having been trained to go fast is now there are pieces of me that are now brand new that have zero training. Right. That don't react. You know, I told you the other day, you know, prior to that first surgery, I could come out and throw, and this was a weapon of mine. I was a very good throwing catcher before my first surgery. 
I could come out and I could be just a little bit off. My feet, my foot could hit a little pile of soft dirt and I'd be just kind of out of whack a little bit, but I could always manipulate the baseball with my fingers and w almost will it into the tagging area because I had that kind of ability to control the baseball. After the surgery, completely gone. Mm. Completely gone. I had lost my feel. Everything had to be exactly just so or it wasn't going to be any good. So – I get the shoulder surgery. I remember it like it was yesterday. The ball was not coming out of my hand good. Um, we got to a couple of days before the end of spring training, and one of my coaches comes up to me and he said, look, Zani, he goes, you're not throwing the ball that well. If you don't turn it up a notch and show us what you got here, uh, you're probably going to have to start the year on the disabled list. So he says, how's your arm feel? I said, it's not hurting. So he takes me out on a backfield, and I throw 25 balls straight as hard as I can to second base. And I wake up the next morning, and some, it felt like a mule kicked me in the back of my shoulder. And so I go, and I, and I get it heated up, and I start playing catch. And all of a sudden, the ball's flying out of my hand like it used to. Couldn't feel it real well, but I, it was the ball's coming out hot. So I must have you know busted a bunch of you – know, scar tissue adhesions loose and now all of a sudden my arm was doing what it was supposed to do and i was ecstatic okay cool unfortunately my giddiness turned into one of the most catastrophic injuries that i ever had later on that day i go out and we're doing some you know bs base running drill and i almost ripped my left calf off the bone and missed four months with a torn calf with a torn gastroc um so the arm, the elbow led to the shoulder, which led to me running around the bases like a giddy little school kid and hurting myself. And then, of course, later on, the elbow went again, like only worse this time, and then they finally went and did a surgical repair. Only they didn't repair the ulnar collateral ligament. So I had all this laxity in my elbow. Mm -hmm. It was popping around, led to... A bone chip, no joke, about the size of the tip of my finger when they finally pulled it out. And then, of course, you know, they pull something out of your elbow that big, there's going to be instability in the joint. It used to keep my elbow kind of in, in place, but then it wandered into a spot where I couldn't straighten my elbow. We were in uh, Oakland. You might have been there, where my elbow locked up. And they had to put me on the disabled list. Why? Because there's only two of us. So, and then five hours after they put me on the DL, it got loose again. So then I had to go get the, the elbow chip out because I didn't want to have to, you know, wonder if it was going to lock up again, but my arm was never the same. And I lived in agony. Like I lived in constant pain. Every time I'd pick up a ball to go throw, I was wondering, is this going to be the last day I ever throw a baseball? And I spent more time in the training room, icing and stimming and lasering and you know, and, and finally, it just got to the point where the only thing that my elbow would respond to was drugs. If it wasn't a, a cortisone injection, it was indecent SR-75s, which are, as you know, are just absolute gut rotters. Um, they burn holes in people's stomachs and their souls, actually. And I was like, th that was it. That was all that I could do to keep myself together. Um, I strengthened my core, I strengthened my shoulder, but I'm not a guy that I have very lax joints to begin with. So it was always very difficult for me to keep this thing together once they started cutting on it. Um, and then of course, you know, you know, accidents happen. I, you know, former, former teammate Eric Kinski fouls a ball off my thumb. I get a Bennett's fracture and I'm still, I still got three screws in my thumb. So one thing led to another. It just was a, a you know, a, what's the word I'm looking for a ripple effect, you know, one thing after another. And, uh, you know, once they cut on me that first time, I was never the same. And, and my body hurt for the next eight years. Eight yeah. Years. Wasn't until I, I kid you not. It wasn't until my arm finally went again. We were in Pittsburgh. I'm playing in my last year, uh, with Milwaukee. I had just gotten run over at home plate, um, uh, by Ian Desmond. We were in Washington. And he hit me. I, I got the the ball came up the mound and it pinned me like this. And I and I just I tried to get my my head out of the way because he was coming in hot. He was coming in high, and I don't blame him. I love I love you know hard play. But I rolled my left my right shoulder into him and he hit me here, and basically destroyed the back of my shoulder. Just all the stuff that had been repaired was now totally totally in pieces again. 
and the training staff in Milwaukee, they didn't believe me when I told them. I said, guys, there's something wrong with the back of my shoulder. I'm telling you, there's something wrong with the back of my shoulder. They're doing all the tests, and you know I'm a pretty strong guy. I like to spend a lot of time in the weight room. So my little tiny muscles and, you know, and, and rotator cuffs and labrums and stuff like that, you know, I can make up for it with the other muscles around my shoulder to keep things stable when they start doing all these little tests that they're doing. You know, I'm a little stronger than the next guy. So they can't really figure out what's going on. So I know something's wrong with it. I play with it, play with it, play with it. We go to Pittsburgh. Then all of a sudden, I'm hitting right-handed. You know I didn't wear batting gloves, so my hands were a little sweaty that day. My left hand comes off the bat, and I go with one hand. I finish the swing. Subluxed the shoulder, and it comes out the front. Mm. Now I've got a complete tear of the labrum from front to back, and I can tell that something's seriously wrong. I felt it come out. My, my shoulder's dislocated. And I'm like, oh, goodness. And I can feel myself starting to get nauseous. So I knew. I I dislocated my shoulder. And then all of a sudden, I just kind of rolled my arm back like this a little bit, and it went right back in where it was supposed to go. But now I know something's wrong because it came out the front. And so I just kind of pinned my right arm to my side. I hit the next pitch to the second baseman, drive in the run, jog to first base, go down the tunnel, throw up in the, in the trash can, and went straight to the training room. I said, I'm done. And that was basically the end of my career. Wow. I rehabbed all winter to get ready because I didn't want the injury to be the reason why I had to retire. And my arm came back. I had shoulder reconstruction. I've got anchors all over the place in there. And I, I it, it's never felt better. I, it's actually better than my left. But mentally, I was so beaten down by the game and all the injuries and all the time I had to spend. No offense, James. I, I wanted to be out on the field, not in the training room with you guys. Um, I'd been so beaten down, I just I couldn't bring myself to do it anymore. When I got to spring training, you know, I went from being first guy to the ballpark, last guy to leave, to last guy to the ballpark, first guy to leave. Like, I wanted away from the park at any cost. So, yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, uh, you go down these lines and, and people that don't know the story and don't know what goes on behind the scenes and they see what's going on, then they hear this. And it's just like, I mean, I'd be the last guy and first guy to leave, too, if we'd gone through all those things. And and, and you bring up some some points, Donnie, beyond the physical injuries. And, and even if we go back to the physical injuries and and the surgical repairs, um, you know, it goes beyond repairing the tissue and it goes far beyond uh, us as a training staff or any trainer or therapist or whoever's working with athletes, getting the tissue right and making sure that 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 test checks out. OK, you're good. See you later. Go go get them. You know, have at it. If, if there's still that hang up, that block, um, we have to take that into consideration. Right. That mental side of things that that feel piece in baseball is is a big one. Right. Like the, the, be, able, the be able to feel the ball, to be able to put the, um, the zip on the ball that you want to have on it and, and control what's going on. Um, Yes, some really good stuff. And, and and then even looking at, okay, once we get that repaired and, and you feel okay, like we have to get you back to position specifics because catching is is sort of the least predictable of all the positions because you're going to take a ball to the out, outer half of the plate and have to throw to second base, the inner half, block a baseball, get up, throw. Um, there's a lot of things to be considered. So um, sports specialization, understanding the sport, the mechanics, the position, uh, the specialties that goes into those positions and the coaches that you work with. So all of these things as a as a practitioner, I'm walking through like there is a there is a very steep hill when injury happens and when surgery happens. Uh, a lot of us uh, outside of the sport look at this as, oh, he got surgery, he's better, or she got surgery, she'll be better in six weeks, she'll be back, and it's not the case. I don't think I, I would agree with you 100%. As soon as you change natural anatomy you are no longer the same by definition. You're no longer the same. Something has been changed. Something has been altered due to the injury and then due to the surgery. So yeah, you can repair the tissue, but the issue may not be, be um, fully healed. Uh, the next piece, you know, in, in sort of that cavalcade or that cascade of events is, is the meds, the painkillers and, and the sort of the feeling of necessity on, on your part or on, and you're not the only one, but you're here and you're sharing this with, with us and, Again, some of this stuff is not easy to share and hearing it from somebody who played in the big leagues for 16 years, like this is going on at all levels of, of at least in high level sport all over the place, right? Where we're medicating and we're using some things that are uh, maybe not the best thing for you. 
you know, to, for your gut, for the, for your long-term health to get you on the field. Um, let me ask you sort of a pointed question with that, because as I'm talking, um, you openly admit like you're going to do what you need to do to stay on the field. Right. But at the same time, there has to be, you know, some education as to what this is going to do to your body. And, and, and you have to understand that. And, and that has to be provided to you. So I think for caregivers out there, uh, you know, especially if you're working in the pro space where there's high stakes, and there's entertainment, there's a lot of dollars on the line. Um, you know, there was a, there was a big special, I know you're living in Canada right now, so maybe you saw it, but a big TSN special on, on sort of hockey and, and painkillers. And, and there was a bunch of guys talking about, you know, how they didn't know and, and how they, you know, they were taking drugs and they would play on one leg if they had if they had to you know and and even if they had to take take whatever they had to take so i I mean it's a long-winded sort of roundabout question of how important an issue is this and and would you sort of stand behind more education in that space for for athletes and uh, and players when it comes to to medicating and and all those kinds not to throw anybody under the bus um but in moving forward would you think there's some space for for furthering that with athletes yeah, I think it's important. Um, I think you give the athletes all the all the information that you can give them. Um, I had to go seek it out for myself. Uh, you know, there were things that were done to my body by doctors and training people. You know, I would say in the latter two thirds of my career that they would never do to a young prospect. You know, um, all the 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 cortisone injections, the painkillers, the Toradols, um, they would never do that to a young player with a huge future, bright future in front of them. So, you know, take your pick, you know, a Bo Bichette or, you know, uh, you know, a Vladdy Jr. would never be injected with the things that I was injected with. A, they're not catchers, and B, they're young, you know, promising young players. But right. once you're not a prospect anymore, it's about getting the job done. It's about being on the field and being accountable. Yeah. And so I always knew what I was putting in my body. I always knew, you know, uh, you know, the, the two seasons that I played where I, I was chewing on Vicodin, like they were like candies. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they didn't react well to Vicodin. I didn't react to anything that had set at the end of its name, Percocet, Darvocet. I couldn't play on that stuff, but Vicodin, I could. And later on, I discovered that, you know, about 2,000 milligrams of extra strength Tylenol worked just as good as, as the Viking, which I couldn't get in Canada. Um, I understood that Toradol works because we had a doctor in Florida who uh, did what he needed to do to get me on the field. You know, I was a catcher. We had a couple of pitchers on our team that were wild stallions that nobody else could really catch and control. And for some reason, I always used to wake up with a crick in my neck when we went to Florida. Pillows at the, the Renaissance Vinoy were garbage, I guess. And so <laughs> literally 15 minutes before I'm going on the field, because I, I, I come to the ballpark like Quasimodo, I got a question mark for a neck. They're jamming me in the spine in my neck with Toradol and uh, what's the stuff that lidocaine, right. uh, just to make the pain go away. Like in, in my in my spine and my trigger points, and I actually kind of I actually take credit for you know discovering this whole thing. I was like, Doc, can you just take the sting out of this? So we we kind of walked through this together. I said, What do you got that you can stick in my neck that won't paralyze me? That will just take the sting out of what I'm experiencing. Every time I go here, I get zapped. Every time I go here, it stops me. I said, if you could just make that pain go away so I could move my head enough to go like this for three hours, we're good. And so he's like, well, I could try some lidocaine and, you know, I could probably throw a little Toradol in there. And before you know it, he's mixed up this cocktail that worked like a charm. And he started mm-hmm. shooting it into other guys that were having, you know, problems. Like some of our starting pitchers were throwing the Toradol and the lidocaine into their shoulders before starts because they were able to go deeper into ball games because they weren't feeling any pain. And you would never do that to a young prospect. You would never, you, in fact, you wouldn't even put a cortisone injection in a young player unless it was going world series time and where you, like, he's the star of the team. You know, if you, if you had to get Bo Bichette on the field and you had four or five days to, to rest him and jam him with some cortisone to get him through the postseason, you might think about it, but you're definitely not going to think about it in May or June. So these are things that, that, that a veteran player 
needs to know about. You give them all the information, and at the end of the day, you let the player go decide what what's it worth to him. For me, it was worth everything. Like, I look at these, these NFL players and their wives that are coming back to the NFL after the fact and trying to sue them because they so-called didn't know about the, the concussion protocols and whatnot. Garbage. You were bashing your head against other human beings at high speed since you were 10 years old. You knew the risks. I knew the risks. I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew exactly what I was shooting into my body in order to compete and to get out there. So I don't, t- I don't t- tell anybody, hey, uh, it's your fault. No, it, it, I take full responsibility for it. And I think that your point, educate the athletes, give them an idea of what it is that they're putting in their body, and then you let them make the ultimate decision. Because if they know what it is, what it could potentially do to them, they have to weigh the risks versus the rewards. That's a hugely important thing. Because, James, we are talking about an entertainment industry that pays these these entertainers a ton of money. Right. A ton of money. And if I'm the owner of the ball club, I feel like I've got every right to expect my star players to be on the field as much as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. And whatever modern medicine and medical techniques that we can utilize to uh, – get them out there. And that's one of the things I loved about Toronto, uh, their utilization of both Eastern and Western medicines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I had never seen that before until I got to Toronto, but the way they meshed Eastern and Western medicine and, and kind of took the best from each. Yeah, absolutely awesome. But you got to give the players all the, all the information. Yeah, no, uh, a beautiful point. And, and we talk through scenarios and we talk through uh, ethical ethical considerations with, with students and these kinds of things. And, and this is where I think like, yeah, I, I'll approach it when I get there. But like, if, if you want to get in this space, these are things that aren't often considered, you know, by by people going through school and, and these kinds of things. So this goes a long, long way, Greg, in, in, in sort of sharing this and getting this out there and, um, uh, and beginning at least the wheels turning. Because I think there is, there's a lot of a lot of room here to to find some educational pieces and 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 highlight some things that that can be done a little bit better or baseball people could start working towards creating catcher specific programming and and these kinds of things um if we shift gears a little bit some things that worked in terms of characteristics with your trainers over the time uh, that you spent in baseball um are there specific characteristics? I mean, you've touched on trust and you've touched on like a, a, at least some knowledge and some education for sure um what are the other things that really work in the in the training room in the performance space from a from a professional standpoint on on this side of the field um, with you with 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 pro athletes with athletes functioning in that space that you just touched on? Well, for me, it was it's I, I'm a hands on guy. I like feel and touch. So acupuncture worked for me. ART worked for me. You guys putting your hands on me. Chiropractics moving my spine, my neck. That, that to me was able to, I was able to connect that with my brain. Mm. I was like, oh, he's got his thumb on a knot in my shoulder. And, oh, that pressure that he's putting in that spot or that, uh, that acupuncture needle with the, with, the, with the stimulation attached to it, I can feel it. And, oh, my goodness, that knot feels like it's relaxing. It feels like it's going away. Right. Whereas modalities, I always called it witchcraft. I didn't believe in <laughs> I didn't yeah. believe in the lasers. You yeah. know, yeah. they were like, "Well, what?" I asked him. I said, "I asked George one time. I said, what's this laser thing doing?'" He's like, "Well, it's shooting, you know, heat." I'm like, "George, I can go sit in a hot tub for five minutes and get deep, deep, moist heat in there." I was like, "Let me just go do that because this isn't. I don't feel this. I, I like to feel the warm water. I wanted you guys to." to if I had a knot in my bag, beat the heck out of it. Get rid of it. Right. You know, that's what worked for me. But then there's some guys who loved all that stuff, the modalities and the, you know, I just never, I never felt unless the wand was left in one spot too long, you know, somebody would go, <laughs> they'd be, they'd be, they'd be wanding me over here and they'd be like, oh yeah, really, really. And I'm like, hey, hey, it's burning me. Knucklehead, keep moving that, keep that thing moving. Um, that's really the only time I felt it. Right. So, you know, that that's why for me it was conversation and touch. I needed to be I, I need to be manhandled, so to speak, in order to make myself, you know, feel like it was working. And yeah. I had 
had to know that you guys just did something. Yeah. Yeah, you know? that 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 feel that needs that that um, you know that that's uh, that's pretty tough to navigate these days during COVID. But uh, right. um, yeah, the, these pieces are um, again critical pieces that sometimes we have to also say like there's an art form to what we do that goes far beyond science. Uh, and part of that art is to know who you are, uh, Greg Zahn, because you're not. Uh, the next guy in the next locker. And and so if you're the guy that needs that and I don't understand that and I'm waving wands and, and telling you this is all you need and, and there's actually, you know, some need to feel and, and do those things. Again, like knowing your athletes is, is another driving piece uh, behind sort of where I'm at and, and messaging that I deliver is, is a lot, you know, you could tell a lot by the way somebody ties their shoes every day or how they put their hat on or their uniform or how they shake your hand and, and these kinds of things. And, and I think a lot of that came from interactions in, in that club house and and as an intern as a fly on the wall and and you know uh there's a lot of crosswords that would go on in those training rooms and and shared time with with some of those guys i just i recall those memories pretty fondly you always had the answers to to 56 down and and 36 across and uh i don't know those things enough time uh, getting educated outside of the game too and and some uh some amazing uh amazing shares um so, so 16 years in the big leagues, man, and um, you, you had a lot of trainers, you had a lot of performance staff, and, and you've touched on so much from, from your own career. Uh, you won the World Series. Not a lot of guys can say that. You won it. I remember those beautiful uniforms. There's a couple of guys that were in the Jays organization uh, when I was there that are now in Florida. Um, and yeah. those those uniforms have changed 19 times, I think, in the last two years. But uh, you won it with the Marlins way back when. Um, any fond, fond or most fond memories from that? I think there was a, a bunch of guys I'm sure you're still in contact with from those times. But um, fondest memories in the World Series and then outside of that and in, in during your career and and we can call it a night man but uh i, I just remember watching that world series and and you know it was before you and i obviously knew each other but then when we saw each other afterwards and that was uh uh yeah that was a big thing in in, in my world but yeah your world series experience well you know for me it was nerve-wracking um I, the only my biggest regret is not you know taking time to smell the roses so to speak mm -hmm. i was a very superstitious young player at the time and I was a backup catcher to Charles Johnson. Um, and I don't remember how it got started, but I remember there were some things that I was doing in the dugout um, in between pitches, certain counts, certain situations, like superstitious things. You know, like I would uh, I'd take my hat off um, during with a 2-2 count, and I remember just, you know, swinging it back and forth like this. And – all of a sudden, one of our guys hit a homer and, yeah. in a big moment in a 2-2 count. So this became the thing to do every 2-2 count. And then every time, if somebody fouled the ball off, I had to put the hat back on and reload. And then with the 3-2 count, it was hit myself in the cup. And then I had to reload. <laughs> um, and there were all these little superstitious things that I was doing throughout the postseason. And, of course, we, we kept winning. So – of course, I'm not going to change it up. So I literally slept like three and a half to four hours a night during the postseason. It was right. just agony for me. Um, and then, and then of course, I get into game seven after not having played for weeks. And now I'm catching the ninth inning of game seven of the World Series. They pinch run me for Charles Johnson. And all of a sudden, I get into the game, and it was the most eerie calm I'd ever experienced in my life. Wow. The first pitch Rob Nen threw to me was a 97-mile-an-hour fastball, followed by a 92-mile-an-hour slider, followed by a 101-mile-an-hour fastball. And I was back there in my element, just bam, bam, bam. And I was like, phew, this is great. You know, I was like finally off the bench, and I didn't have to be chewing my fingernails. And I remember screwing up. It's the only bunt attempt I didn't get on the ground in my entire major league career. Game seven of the World Series, Charles Nagy comes flying off the mound and makes this diving catch. If he doesn't catch the ball, the bunt gets down. Bobby Bonilla probably gets thrown out because he was running around on a torn Achilles tendon. And I was like, oh, well, we win the game. And I'll never forget this. We win the game, and the, the place was madhouse. Like, there were, like I didn't know 90% of the people in the clubhouse. You know, there was wives and families in there, too. But all the people that just all of a sudden showed up in our clubhouse – 
it was actually taking away from our enjoyment of the moment. Mm. And I remember going into the training room and the same cats that were always in the training room, Moise Alou, uh, Bonilla, Sheffield, Conine, the veteran guys who hated talking to the media, they were in the training room. And I was like, you know what? This is a really good idea. So me, in, in my third year in the big leagues, third year player, I go grab all of our teammates and I'm like, team meeting in the training room. I take everybody into the training room and I turn around and I lock the door. And everybody's in there with your champagne bottle. We left our families in the clubhouse with the media and everybody else. And now the entire roster's in the training room. And we're drinking our champagne and smoking our cigars. And this is where the stories start to flow. This is when the camaraderie starts to happen. This is when we started to reflect as a group on what had just happened. Yeah. And that Beautiful. was a special moment for me. I had teammates, guys like Devon White, um, you know, other guys, Bobby Bonilla that I run into, or would run into from time to time when he was working for the unit. And these guys, these veteran players that had taken me under their wing, you know, a long time ago, because I was lucky enough to play with Bobby in, in, uh, in Baltimore as well. They were like, Zani, we really, really appreciate you doing that. It was a special moment for our club. And it was a great moment for us to share with the inner circle, the group. And, you know, and I don't know why I did it. I just did it. Yeah. And, that's a moment for me that sticks out from that actual winning the World Series. Um, and it was short-lived because, you know, they blew the team up in the offseason. They started trading away guys. And, and it was, you know, we went from worst to first back to worst. Yeah, the, the, yeah. the, the business side reared, its, uh, reared its, uh, its, its, its regular head at that point. Yeah, but what a that cool – pretty special for me. Yeah, what a cool story. And, and it, for me, it's like uh, it highlights that sacred ground that is the training room. You know, no media in there. They're not allowed in there. That's a space yeah. where you can go. And, and if there's trusting relationships and, and good conversation, it's, it's a place you can hang out for hours and hours and hours and, and lock the door and feel Nobody safe. Nobody does that anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, you saw you came along right at the kind of tail end of us veteran guys that were still around. Like we had been trained by the older guys. To sit around after the game and drink, you know, four or five beers, you yeah. know, until somebody went and ruined it and got a DUI. But we used to sit around and drink four or five beers after a game, and we would talk about what happened. If we lost, how are we going to improve? And then we would talk about what was going to happen the next day. Who are we facing? What are we doing? You don't see that anymore. These mm-hmm. kids are in and out of the clubhouse. Ridiculous. I mean, they get there at like 1 o'clock because they feed them like 20 meals a day in there now. <laughs> Whereas we actually would love to go to lunch with our teammates on the road. Now they can't wait. They, they, they go to the ballpark at 1 o'clock and they're, you know, eating all that clubhouse stuff. I'm like, what are you guys doing, man? And why aren't you talking about the game? Why aren't you spending time with one another? Because you know what I miss the most about the game? I don't miss the game at all. The playing of the game, the grind of, of you know, wondering if I'm going to, you know, make it through the season, have a job next year. I miss the fellas. I miss the guys. I miss those conversations over ice cold beer in the clubhouse, sitting around in our underwear in a hot tub, you know, talking about the game. I miss the road trips. Uh, I miss the card games on the plane. All that camaraderie, that fellowship. That's what I miss the most about playing baseball. It wasn't, it's not the game itself. You take that or leave it. But it, it was it was the boys. You know, and that includes a lot of you guys that, that, that we work with in the training room. I mean, there were good ones and bad ones. Um, but it's, it's, it's stuff you can't get. Like, it doesn't happen in any other, any other business. You know, do you think a bunch of insurance salesmen get together after work? And, you know, it doesn't happen. It's not, it's not, it's not, you spend more time with your teammates than you do your wives. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, to hear you say, you know, the one sort of regret would be not taking the time to smell the roses. And, and that goes for all of us, you know, you know, uh, life is fleeting, uh, you know, experiences are fleeting, but this is what we live for. We live for those experiences and, and not to collect things. And so, uh, all of these shares this evening, Zani have been, uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, session 62, first star let's chat, um, with Greg Zahn, uh, on board here for this one. Um, next week we got another one of your uh, one of your ex com- comrades there. Actually, another ex Blue Jay with uh, part two of our Tommy John education series with Jesse Litch. Uh, he'll be on next week, next Sunday evening. Um, but not to take away from this one, uh, 
Greg, this has been absolutely phenomenal, man. I'd love to um, to have you on again in the future and talk about a few different things. This is uh, a lot of great stuff that I know a lot of practitioners can take away from. Athletes will listen to this and take something away from this. Fans will will see the game in a different light. Uh, all kinds of things. Always great um, to hear you, to hear your viewpoint, to, to see you here um, in, in two dimensions. And uh, I'll let you take this one uh, over the fence to, to close it out, man. But thank you so much. I'm, I am absolutely Absolutely grateful for your time and uh, completely humbled to have you here. My pleasure. Anytime. You call me whenever. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, guys. This has been great. Uh, I will hang out here for a few minutes with anybody who wishes to stay on. Uh, some great insight with Greg Zahn next week with Jesse Litch. As always, brought to you by Mobility Tape, the only heat-activated kinesiology tape on the market. Our new sponsors, Epic, Live Your Epic, and Benchmark Athletics in association with the Canadian Athletic Therapist Association. Lots of thank yous coming in, Greg. This has been yeah, absolutely thank amazing, you everybody man. For being here. Thank you so much. Good night. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community. Check us out online firststartherapy.com that's f-i-r-s-t-a-r therapy.com or email us with feedback consult at firststartherapy.com c-o-n-s-u-l-t at firststartherapy.com on instagram at firststar.therapy and our podcast host at letschat.at this is first star let's chat an athletic therapy podcast 